0: Turn in the Old Testament to the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 6. Intriguing fellow, this Gideon, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Judges chapter 6. The uh, history of Gideon begins, as these stories so often begin in the book of Judges, with the story of Israel's decline in their sin. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of uh, of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Just a couple of factors to note here. One is the fact, again, of Israel's apostasy, and secondly, the impossibility of of anyone setting things right, not Othniel, not Ehud, not Barak or Deborah, or any of the other people whose stories we've uh, we've looked at in this book. No one could save Israel. The enemy this time, the dominating force, came uh, from the east rather than from the north. They were the Midianites, who were actually ancient Relatives of Israel, they uh, were the offspring of Keturah, one of Abraham's wives, and the Amalekites, uh, Israel's ancient enemies from the south, one of the first people that they encountered when they came out of Egypt, and people that are described here as eastern people, uh, nomads from the, from the Syrian desert, and we're told that annually they swept across the land of Palestine, raping and pillaging and, and ruining, riding camels. Interesting that skeptics uh, used to say this is uh, one of those historical inaccuracies in the Old Testament because they didn't use camels as a military force back then. But uh, some years ago, they discovered the bones of camels at this uh, particular level, 13th century B.C. And so there's no question, again, of the accuracy of this account. These camels gave them a long-range striking force. Israel could do nothing uh, about these annual assaults. They uh, took what crops they could and destroyed the crops that were left, and Israel was left destitute. And as the writer puts it, they hid in the caves, strongholds, the well-known uh, clefts in the rock, is the way the author puts it. As, they, as we say today, they headed for the hills. There was no, uh, no safety. And uh, in their extremity, they again asked for help. You would think the Lord would get tired of giving help to people who repeatedly sin. But it's his character to give and to give and to give again. When sin abounds, as Paul puts it, grace much more abounds. And so our Lord did two things. First, he sent a prophet who told them precisely what they had, what they had done wrong. He sent a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I said to you, verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites, but you have not listened to me. So here again, idolatry had crept into Israel's uh, thinking and in their religious practice. And, and they worship the gods of the Amorites. And God does what he always does. He puts his finger squarely on the issue. God never plays games with us. He's not the author of these vague feelings of guilt when we sin. He puts his finger right on the sin. He always lets us know where we've gone wrong. And then he does a second thing. Despite their sin, he raises up a Savior. And that's uh, this uh, fellow Gideon whose life we want to look at this morning. Verse Verse 11. The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord representing himself in the form of an angel. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself in some pre-incarnate form. Came and sat down under the oak and ophir that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, that's a small tribe up in the northern part of Israel, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. He was improvising to keep the Midianites from stealing his grain. He was down in the hollow in a rock, hunched down, out of sight, Beating out grain with a stick is the way the text uh, puts it. The angel of the Lord appeared to get in and said, "The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior." The uh, phrase that's translated "mighty warrior" here is a is an expression in Hebrew that referred to the military aristocracy of that day. Literally, it means a a very brave warrior. Here's Gideon down in his hole, beating out uh, wheat, and uh, the angel greets him. Uh, hello there, brave fellow. And uh, I'm Gideon, I'm sure, thought, who? Me? Are you referring to me? Either Gideon missed the irony of, of the angel's greeting, or he was so angry it didn't make any difference, because he launches into an impassioned attack upon God, which sounds so much like me, and and I'm sure it sounds like you as well, we we do things and get ourselves in these terrible messes, and then then we blame God for what's happened to us. It's God's fault. He did this. Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of of Midian. Instead of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, this is God in the hands of an angry sinner. Uh, Actually, Midian's brothers had been slain by the Midianites. He had reason to be upset and angry. He takes out all of his his anger and his wrath on God. If you're really with us, why has all of this this happened to us? And... uh, God doesn't even try to respond to his attack. The Lord turned to him, verse 14, and said, Go in this strength, literally, go in this strength, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And and Gideon's response is very often our response. What strength? How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites as if they were but one man. You understand what the angel is saying? This strength that he refers to was Gideon's weakness. Because strength always comes out of our inadequacy. Our sufficiency is the result of of our sensing our own weakness our own lack our desperate need when we say in the words of scripture we are weak in him that's not just a pious platitude that's an absolute certainty we are inadequate i remember years ago when i was first beginning my ministry i went in to talk to a dear friend of mine who was just here last week ray stedman and and i uh, i i said to ray ray you know i i, I hate to tell you but uh, I am I am incompetent for this ministry. I don't have what it takes. I just don't have the resources that are necessary to to get this job. I was on the staff of his church and I was a high school pastor at the time. We had a very large high, inherited a very large high school group when I when I went to that church. And I said, "Ray, I'm I'm inadequate. I can't do the job." And Ray looked at me and his eyes twinkled and he said, uh, "You are, my boy." He said, take it by faith. You are inadequate. He said, and it's a good thing that you've recognized it at this stage of your life because some of us stumble our way through life and never realize how inadequate we are. we, We don't like to think that of ourselves. We like to think that we can handle anything. We have the background and the education and the experience and the... Personality and the wit and the humor and everything that we need to get the, get the job done, and, and the Lord says to us, as He said to Gideon, "You don't have what it takes," I and mean, it's very humbling, very humiliating to us. But it's a fact; it's a fact. The flesh can profit nothing. Those are Jesus' words. It is the Spirit that gives life. You see, and the Apostle Paul learned that the hard way. He uh, he was a very competent man, highly educated, well trained, uh, had a brilliant mind. Uh, he thought he had everything that he needed to get the job done. And, uh, and, 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 and then he found himself desperately ill. We don't know exactly what, what went wrong, but there was some affliction, some sickness that Paul had that he carried with him, uh, that, that he carried with himself all the way through his life. And uh, he said, uh, these are his words in 1 Corinthians 12. Three times I asked the Lord to take this illness, this weakness. He describes it as a thorn in the flesh. Uh, I asked the Lord to take this away from me. Because he thought that this weakness was incapacitating. He thought if I could just get over this uh, this affliction, I, I, I could serve so much better. I would be so much more effective people would be more attracted to me and I would have a, a much more weight in my ministry. And the Lord kept saying to him, Paul, that affliction is a problem to you, but that's not a problem to me. As a matter of fact, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Because, as Paul went on to put it, when I am weak, therefore, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when when we're, when we're strong, God can't, uh, can't do anything. He can't go to work. And that's why He has to thwart us and frustrate us. And, and He tutors us and teaches us through the, the failings and, and the, 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 the crashes that we take. The wheels fall off of our program and, and people disappoint us. And we disappoint ourselves until we finally learn that greatest of all lessons. I can't. And then when can do no longer can... We can. We can. George MacDonald put it like this. He said, We should then confess ourselves poor creatures, for that is the be- beginning of being great men and great women. To try to persuade ourselves that we are something when we are nothing is terrible loss. To confess that we are nothing is to lay the foundation of being something. Now that's what Gideon had to learn. This was the strength in which he could go and save Israel. Uh, but uh, one of the things we'll notice about Gideon, and this is one of the reasons that I like this story, I identify with him so closely, is that he never could quite get the message right. He had it up here, but that 18 inch uh, drop uh, he had difficulty with. He couldn't seem to get the truth down into his heart. And so he says to the Lord, I need a sign. I need some assurance that you're with me. And so the angel gives him some directions and he prepares an offering and he sacrifices. He places this offering on the rock where he was beating out the wheat. And the angel of the Lord touches the rock with his wand and the offering is consumed. And the angel disappears and Gideon falls to his knees and he says, I will surely die. Because he realized that he'd been in the presence of God. You see, back then, people had a much more realistic concept of sin than they do today. They knew they were unholy. And they believed if they ever stood in the presence of a holy God, it was all up with them. Their lives were over. And that's why Gideon fell to his knees. He realized that he'd been in the presence of God. Certainly, God would consume him just as he consumed that sacrifice. But the Lord goes on to assure him, you can read the text on your own, that there was peace between the two. And on the strength of that promise, uh, Gideon named this site, uh, Yahweh is peace, Yahweh shalom. He said, Yahweh is peace. In other words, he realized that he had been reconciled to God. There was no enmity between him and God, that God loved him and accepted him and and he was assured of God's presence and his care. He could he, he, he could sense the love of God for him on the basis of that sacrifice. Here there's a prefiguring in the Old Testament of that once for all sacrifice to come where the life of God itself was poured out as a way of making peace. So that this is the second thing I notice about this story first is that That Gideon is given God's sufficiency, and then then Gideon is sent out with this wonderful assurance that that God loves him. That God cares about him. That God likes him. Even though he's not strong, he's not tough, he's not macho, he's not able, he's not sufficient. He himself struggles to to obey, and, and yet he's deeply loved by God. Now, what a wonderful assurance that is to know when we, we set out to do something that God asks us to do, to know that even if we do it or if it's left undone, we're still accepted and loved by God. As the hymn puts it, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That he should care for us in that, in that way now um, the story goes on uh, we're told in verse 23 that same night the same night in which peace was made the assurance of God's sufficiency was given the Lord said to him take the second bull from your father's herd the one seven years old this was the bull that had been sacrificed uh, that had been dedicated to baal a bull bulls were used as symbols of of Baal, the pagan god Baal, and the other Baalim, the other Baals. As a matter of fact, our word bull probably comes from that, that word Baal. And the seven years represents the seven years of servitude to Baal that Israel had experienced. And Gideon is told to tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the ash or a pole beside it, and build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this bluff, where everyone could see it. So Gideon did it. He took uh, ten of his servants. It took uh, he needed the support of ten men, and he did it under cover of darkness. But he did it. He cut down the Asherah pole. This pole that was embedded in the ground. It was a fertility symbol of Asherah, the goddess of fertility, Baal's consort. He chopped that into pieces and split it, and made made uh, made a fire. And he sacrificed this altar, and he did it in plain sight upon the bluff where everyone could see it. And in the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Townspeople said, Who did this? When they investigated, they were told Gideon did it. So the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside him. They were frightened because the Israelites at this time in their idolatrous worship depended very much, they thought, on Baal. It was Baal who brought the rains, it was Baal who brought fertility, it was Baal who caused them to have many children and and you, you couldn't do without Baal and this man had desecrated the Baal sanctuary. And it, it seems to me that Gideon's father was actually the high priest or the, the custodian of the Baal sanctuary uh, sanctuary there in his home. And so they, uh, they wanted this uh, young man killed. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd, are you going to plead, plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by the morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself. So that day they called Gideon Yerubal, In other words, Baal fighter. Baal contender because he broke down Baal's altar. You understand what happened? His father was converted. And you see, this is where the Lord always wants us to begin. You know, when we're asked to do some something for God, he, he starts at home. Obedience as well as charity begins at home. Uh, that's where our authority is established. We, we cannot be out... Side of our homes, doing great things for God if our homes are in disarray. First things first. We have to focus on obedience at home. That's where it really matters. And as a result of Gideon's focusing on his own family, his father was converted from Baal worship back to the worship of, of Israel's God. And as a result... Gideon had authority then to lead the other tribes. Note what happens when one of these annual raids begins. Verse 33, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Here they come again. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites. That's, it. That's his own family, his own clan to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, that's his tribe, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went out to, to meet him. Because he was obedient in the first things. He had authority with others. See, that, that's always the set of priorities that God gives to us. First, our relationship with God. That comes before anything else. Secondly, our relationship with our families. And then our ministry outside the family. And if we've established our obedience in those areas, then our obedience will be established outside. Because um, authority in the spiritual realm is not a matter of having a loud voice and a very strong personality or a strong will or having lots of charm or chutzpah or or any of those uh, those factors. It's not a matter of being a dominating personality. I always uh, uh, flinch when I'm around young managers that are trying to establish their authority over people that serve them. And they think they have to bully them and they have to speak very loudly and they have to demand and insist in order to get things done. The sort of authority that... that God establishes for us is a different kind of authority. It's a quiet influence on others that comes as a result of our obedience to the truth. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. He said, don't... Timothy had a, a very responsible position. He was an apostolic delegate to a number of churches in Asia Minor. It must have been an overwhelming task for such a young man. And Paul said, don't let... Anybody despise your youth? Now, he wrote that in a in an age when uh, being venerable was the thing. You know, it, it was the aged who, the elders, who had authority in that day and age. And here's a young man in a position of leadership over older people, and Paul says, "Don't let anybody put you down because you're young." Well, how how was Timothy to establish his authority? Demanded on the basis of his apostolic appointment? Insist on it because he held that office? No. Paul says be an example to the believers of word. In word, what you say. And in conversation, that is in, in behavior. It's the word that he uses. Your lifestyle. In faith. In obedience. In love. See, it's a matter of character. That's what establishes our authority with others. And so we know God and we're walking in obedience to Him. And then people began to to listen to us, and in this case uh, gideon 's uh, not only gideon 's clan, but three of the largest tribes, actually four of the largest tribes in northern Israel, went out uh, with him to meet uh, uh, to meet the Midianites. But uh, Gideon has another uh, failure of nerve; um, he had that uh, what Samuel Johnson once called is that wonderful sense of concentration that a man achieves on the eve of his hanging. Um, <clears throat> he was going out to do battle, and suddenly it came to him again that uh, he was not adequate for the task, and he needed to be assured of God's, uh, God's presence. By the way, that, that seems to be a common phenomenon in the Scripture. The night before... Or the eve of some great venture of faith. Very, very often is a time of great testing for God's people. It's true of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison. He was about to go to his death. And he sent word. His faith began to collapse. It's a very human response. He began to wonder if Jesus was who he claimed to be. So he sent word to Jesus. He said, are you the one that the prophets uh, uh, predicted? Or should we look for another? And, and our Lord had to assure him. It even happened to Jesus in the years, in, in, in his humanity, in the days before the cross. And you certainly see it at Gethsemane, where uh, he wanted, if possible, to, to avoid the cross. He flinched. He didn't want to go through that experience. It's a very human experience to to give way to, to fear uh, before some great test. And it happened to get in. He said, uh, Lord, I need some help here. I just need some assurance that you're with me which the Lord so graciously supplies. He is never put off by our fear, by our feelings of inadequacy. He wants to do everything that he can to assure us that he's at hand. Now, this is uh, that strange sign of the fleece, which you're all familiar with. Now, putting out a fleece has become a, a common phrase in, in Christian circles, evangelical Christian circles. What uh, Gideon did seems a little strange. He actually asked for a miracle that was uh, uh, very much contrary to nature, but it was also kind of kooky. It's like asking for snow in the middle of July. Uh, What he does is he puts a a fleece, a lambskin, on the ground, and he says, all right, Lord, if the fleece has has dew on it in the morning and the ground is dry, then I'll know you're with me. So he woke up the next morning, the fleece was wet, the ground was dry. So he said, all right, let's try again. He said, this time, uh, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know you're with me. So it happened again. And uh, I don't see that as a a way to determine God's will for us today, but it's just a wonderful illustration of God's willingness to do whatever needs to be done in order to encourage us to the task at hand. And uh, so uh, uh, fortified in this way, Gideon goes out. Uh, to conduct holy war. I love this next section. It is familiar to all of you. Chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, in case we've forgotten, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north in the valley near the hill of Morah. And we know there were 135,000 in that army that was massed there. 135,000 people. Gideon had 32,000. That's uh, four to one odds. Not the best of odds. Now, you know the story. God looks at this, uh, this motley army of Gideons and he says, we've got to do something about that army. We've got to beef that army up. Uh, a couple of things I want to do. First of all, um, we need to do something about those odds. Four to one odds, it's not good odds. So I want you to ask how many of your people are afraid. And if they're afraid, they can go home. And uh, I I think probably Gideon would have been the first one to leave if he could have left. But uh, Gideon says to his army, all right, how many of you are afraid? And 22,000 of them packed up their gear and went home. So he's left with 10,000. That's 13 to 1 odds. And God says, well, I still don't like those odds. We've got to do something about that. We have to strengthen this army somewhat. So he says, uh, take your army down to the river, and those that get down on their hands and knees and, and lap water out of the out of the creek, send those fellows home. But those that pick up water in their hands and and they lap water out of their hands, uh, you, you keep those soldiers. Now I don't know why he did that. The rabbis have some really outrageous guesses. If they don't know, I don't know. I'm not even going to guess why the Lord used that particular way to decimate. Uh, Gideon's army. Nonetheless, there were only 300 that picked up water in their hands. What's that, 450 to 1 odds? And God says, now that's more like it. That's, that's the kind of odds I like to work with. And then he says, we have to do something about uh, uh, these uh, these 300. They're not not armed well. I want, I want them to take off their armor. And I want them to take off their, uh, uh, their swords, leave, leave their hand, hand uh, uh, weapons behind. And uh, we're going we're gonna to arm them suitably. So he gives them a trumpet and a pitcher with a, with a candle in it. Now he says, you're ready to go, go to war. He dismembers Gideon's army. And he disarms them. And I think of what what Paul said. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are not political. They're not military. They are spiritual. We've talked a lot about the weapons with which God has armed us, the weapons of faith and obedience and prayer love, these are the mighty swords that God has, has put into our hands. And it is God's delight to take the, the weakest, most ill-equipped people and arm them with those weapons and send them out into the holy war. I was telling the staff uh, a couple of weeks ago, I have this recurring dream. Now, it's actually a nightmare is what it is. I show up here on Sunday morning all ready to preach, and there are about a half a dozen of you here. Everybody is gone. Now, it doesn't take uh, a dream therapist to, to know what uh, what's going on. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this whole operation depends on me. If I don't have something to say up here on Sunday morning, nobody's going to show up. And if you don't show up, there are a whole bunch of people on the staff and missionaries and others that, that aren't going to be paid, and this whole thing's going to collapse, and it all depends upon me. Well, here's another instance where the truth, and I know the truth up here, but sometimes it hasn't dropped that 18 inches to the heart so that I really realize that it all depends upon him. That God is not dependent upon numbers, size does not equal success, methods or techniques or preaching or any of these things that we normally think are necessary in order to, to put a church together. The weapons of our warfare are something other than these fleshly weapons that we normally uh, normally think about. I came across a statement by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones recently. Uh, he put it this way. We Christians often quote, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Remember the chorus we just sang. And yet in practice, we seem to rely upon the Almighty dollar and the power of the press and advertising. We seem to think that our influence will depend on our technique and the program we can put forward, and that it would be the numbers, the largest, the, big, the largeness, the bigness that will prove effective. We seem to have forgotten that God has done most of his deeds in the church throughout its history through remnants. We seem to have forgotten the great story of Gideon, for instance, and how God insisted on reducing the 32,000 men down to 300 before he could make use of them. We have become fascinated by the idea of bigness, and we are quite convinced that if we can only stage, yes, that's the word, stage something really big before the world, we will shake it and produce a mighty religious awakening. That seems to be the modern concept of ministry. And every once in a while, God does something like this that shows, as he did to Gideon, that shows that it is not by numbers, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit that things are accomplished. Ray Stedman told a story while he was here last week at our IMM conference that has always been very uh, meaningful to me. I'd heard it a number of times. I've never seen it in a book, and I realize now the reason why. Ray said that he was, uh, he was in England. And he met the rector of, um, uh, of a church in London who told him how he became a Christian. He became a believer as a result of Dwight L. Moody's ministry at Cambridge University when he came to speak to that, that student body. Dwight L. Moody had an eighth-grade uh, education. He was famous for slaughtering the king's English. And uh, this particular man was a student at Cambridge at the time, and he came to heckle Moody. He was going to give him a hard time about his uh, misuse of grammar and whatnot. <laughs> And he was sitting right on the front row. And Moody stepped up to the, to the platform. And he, he, he fixed that young man. He, of course, he had no idea what he planned to do, but he fixed him with a stare. And he said, young man, don't think God don't love you. Because he do. <laughs> and he was stunned. He was electrified. And he went on to listen and eventually to receive Christ as his Savior, who is now serving Christ in the church in in London, and uh, every once in a while, God raises up some weak, ineffectual uh, uh, individual like that, and like Gideon, to show that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. Now, uh, the the battle follows, and uh, we're just about out of time. Let me simply tell you that God assured Gideon again that uh, He was fighting uh, on his behalf. Gideon was, uh, God said to Gideon, if you're afraid, uh, I have some, have some encouragement for you. <laughs> Gideon says, if? What do you, what do you mean if? Um, so God says, take your page, go down to the camp of Midian and listen to what they're saying. You overheard two soldiers describing a dream that one of them had. I had. saw a, a barley loaf, a stale loaf of barley bread, which uh, they tell us is the bread of the very poor hardly edible and this was a stale loaf on top of that an indication again of, of the weakness of Gideon's uh, army He said I saw a stale uh, army uh, uh, a stale uh, barley loaf roll into camp and it flattened the tent of our commander and the other soldier said this has to be Gideon and uh, this is the Lord's word to us and Gideon was was uh, heartened encouraged by that uh, by that sign he went back mustered his uh, Paltry uh, army of 300 men stationed them around the camp of the Midianites. I'm sure you know the story from Sunday school. At Gideon's signal, they broke the pitchers, the lights flared, they blasted their trumpets, they shouted at the top of their lungs. The Gideonites uh, leaped out of their sleeping bags, frightened out of their wits, snatched up their swords. Started fighting each other. The, they came from different clans, different tribes. They didn't speak the same languages. They didn't know who the enemy was and who the friends were. They began to uh, to kill each other, and the army was decimated. They fled across the Jordan. Gideon pursued them with his army and and uh, and drove them forever out of out of Israel's uh, territory. I just wish the story ended right here. It would be so good if we could wrap this story up and. Uh, and say that uh, Gideon uh, finished off his life to the very end. He kept the faith, as Paul would put it. He, he did uh, all that God expected him to do as he aged, but unfortunately, that wasn't the case. There are a couple of indications, even in the battle, that, that all of this success was going to Gideon's head. He was beginning to think that, that he had a hand in all of this, despite the Lord's efforts to reduce him... To almost nothing. He kept thinking I contributed to this in some way and when he came back he was exceptionally cruel to some of his own own people, the people of Succoth because they had refused to give him help he maimed some of them which was contrary to uh, Israelite law and then you can read the story for yourself, it's in chapter 8 they came to Gideon and said we so desperately need a king, will you rule over us you and your sons and your sons' sons we want to set up a dynasty and your family will rule forever And Gideon uh, very piously said, uh, no, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. Um, However, you know, God will uh, rule over you, said very piously, but without much heart in it. But he said, uh, tell you what, uh, I, I, I could use a little gold. And so they literally backed the truck up to Gideon. And uh, they unloaded on him some half million dollars of gold. That was in that economy. Today, it would be worth uh, considerably more than that. He took the gold, and he began to live a very lavish, kingly lifestyle. He had many wives and many concubines. He would not accept the responsibility, but uh, accepted the uh, perquisites of the king. Uh, He actually named one of his sons... Uh, Abimelech, we'll talk about Abimelech uh, next uh, week. He's one of the worst mistakes that Israel ever made. His name means, my father, Abi. Uh, You'll recognize the Abba, that's the Aramaic word that Jesus used for father. Abi is my father, and Melech is the word for king. Abimelech, my father is king. And uh, uh, he took that gold and he made an ephod, which was the breastplate that the priest wore, and apparently he made himself a kind of priest king. It was the, uh, it was the ephod that carried the, that contained the Urim and the Thummim, through which they, the priest discerned the will of God. So he became a sort of oracle, and after a while Israel began to worship the ephod, and he led the whole nation into apostasy. And I say, what in the world went wrong? Where did Gideon uh, uh, go astray? Well, he apparently believed, as some Christians believe, that there it is possible to just plateau out. You, you can grow for a while, and then you can rest on your laurels. You, you can sort of back off, and, and you can live off of past achievements and accomplishments, and uh, you don't need to go on with God. But as Jesus put it, what you, you, you get more of what you have. This is in Matthew 13. But if you do not have ears to hear more, even what you have is taken away from you. In other words, we cannot remain static in the Christian life. We are either going on, growing on, uh, uh, taking on new challenges, facing new sins in our life, Uh, learning more of God, letting him reveal more and more of our sinfulness and and deal with it, or we're in retrograde. You you cannot drift. There is no middle ground. We're either going on or we're going back. And as Jesus put it, the tragedy is even what we have is taken away from us. We end up worse off than we were before, and that's exactly what happened uh, to Gideon. You know, uh, in in thinking about this, uh, it occurred to me that there's a very special application here for those of us that are getting a little older. Uh, I'm thinking uh, retirement. Some of you are thinking retirement. And I'm just uh, wondering how all of this fits in with Christian faith and whether we as Christians can ever really retire. And I just want to say we can't. We can't. Oh, we may have to phase down. We may have to stop doing the job that we've done for 20 or 30 years. Uh, We may need to change our pace. But we can never stop ministering. And we don't have to. Because I would have to say, I I agree with Jesus. He saves the last wine, the best wine until the last. The best years are later on. As uh, Robert Browning said, come grow old with me. Uh, the best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made. I, I agree. I agree. I I think the Lord can take these last years of our life and fill them with fragrance uh, and, and use us in ways that he's never used us before. I told the uh, the moms, Friday I spoke to the moms, I told them about my mother and the impact that my mother had had on me. Um, my mother was like... Uh, like uh, uh, what's his name? Caleb. Caleb. When he was eighty, he said, "I'm going to take on the mountains." Uh, when she reached eighty, uh, she just kept right on climbing. She started organizing Bible studies for women, and she wrote a series of Bible studies called "Bible Studies for Busy Women," as she put it. I, I accused her of being sexist because men are busy too, but uh, she insisted on on the name. And uh, she continued to teach right up uh, almost to the end of her life. At the end of her life, she was incapacitated by uh, by a stroke. But she had a plaque over her over her uh, desk that read, "Only when life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last." And I've never been able to forget that that plaque. Humanly speaking, that's one of the reasons I'm in the ministry today because that plaque stuck. That motto stuck in my mind. I couldn't get away from it. And I began to realize that for me, it's different for all of us, but for me I needed to be investing my life full time in ministry. She had an enormous impact upon me and and upon others. And you can have the same kind of influence. Just keep on growing. Keep on going. Keep on believing that God can, can use you. You're never too old to outgrow the the grace and the goodness and the power of God. Well, let's pray. Father, we want to once more offer up our lives to you, thanking you for your presence throughout all of our life, that sufficiency that that follows us all the days of our life. We want our lives to matter. We want them to count. We don't want to disqualify ourselves because we feel inadequate, nor do we want to be disqualified because we fail to lay hold of the grace that you've given to us. Make of us what you desire us to be, we ask in Jesus' name.